This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Tom Bennett. Tom was a teacher in the East End of London for 13 years. Currently, he is the director and founder of Research Ed, a grassroots teacher-led project that aims to make teachers research literate and pseudoscience proof. Since 2013, Research Ed has grown from a tweet to an international conference movement that so far has spanned three continents and six countries. In 2009, he was made a teacher fellow of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge University. And from 2008 to 2016, he wrote a weekly column for the TES and TES Online and is the author of four books on teacher training behaviour management and educational research, including his latest book, The Outstanding Running the Room, which we're going to talk about today. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. What a brilliant introduction. I couldn't have written anything better myself. Wonderful stuff. I think you possibly did write it yourself. Maybe did. Who knows? (laughs) Um, So just to to ease us in a a little bit, can you give us a a really quick uh, tour of your career to date? Yes. Um, It's less than edifying. I, I, I went to university in Glasgow, I'm from Glasgow obviously, I went to Glasgow University, I studied philosophy because that's where all the big bucks are, um, and obviously I ended up working in bars after that. <laughs> Viewers in Glasgow will know me from TGI Fridays, <laughs> where, I, where I left the last shreds of my dignity behind. Um, I went to London, I, I, I managed. I worked as a bartender there for several years in Soho, I managed bars and nightclubs in Soho. And from that, it was just a natural transition into teaching religious studies. Uh, a secondary level, you can see it's a seamless transition. And I went, um, I was about 30 years old, and I realized I had to do something. I was going to go crazy. And I loved it. Teaching saved me. And I got a job uh, in Bethnal Green in East London. Uh, some pretty challenging schools. <laughs> it was a real trial by fire. But I love teaching so much. And I often say that it, it absolutely saved me because it gave me meaning and purpose and kind of structure to my life again. And, you know, it, it, like I say, it's the best job in the world. He says, having left it three years or four years ago. <laughs> I'm such a fraud now. There you go. That's a, that's a big threat. We're sort of, oh, I can carry on. And then I started to write. And then I got into social media. And this is when people were nice. And then kind of through that, people started to read my work. I started to write books about behaviour management. Um, and then I became the behaviour czar. And then here I am. Hello. Love that. Love that's love it. That's that. my job. Like so it was a, such a such a seamless seamless journey through the, the life and times of Tom. I don't know how much detail you want. I, I presume not much. <laughs> no, that's, so, that's brilliant. Thank you. That was, so we talk about. Sorry, that was the bird's eye view I got you. <laughs> Wait, so we're going to talk about um, your latest book, uh, Running the Room, and can you share why you wrote that? I wrote this book because I mean I've been write, I've been writing about behaviour for about ten years. Um, which isn't to say I'm any better than a good teacher in any other school. I'm good. I'm bloody good at it, but I'm no better than you know many good teachers we all know. But what I do is I like to write about it. And the reason I write about it is because teacher training and behaviour management nationally, you know, Scotland and, Scotland and England, is, is, mm. pretty, is pretty bare. It's pretty threadbare. You'd expect to pick it up on the job as you go along. You know, and let's not, let's not train airline pilots like that or, or, or heart surgeons. And because of that, I thought, this is no good. Every single time a new generation of teachers comes through, every time we get a new cohort of teachers, they have to reinvent the wheel. And they have to, they have to work out for themselves how to manage classrooms, because that's the expectation. Or, you know, or they're told rubbish things like, if your lesson's well-planned, they'll behave. What a lot of rubbish. 
what a lot of rubbish. And it's stuff like that that's forced into your head as a new teacher. And I thought, enough, enough, enough. I go to a lot of schools. Right? My, 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 my entire career is based now on going to schools and looking at their behaviour policies and how teachers run classrooms. And I just take notes about what all the best ones do. Uh, and, I go, and I I always exclusively look at challenging schools that are inclusive with a challenging demographic that are also comprehensive. You know, that's, 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 the, that's the dream team. And you look at what they're doing. And I summarised that and I put it into this book. And I thought, this is the book I would have wanted to read when I was a new teacher. Uh, without the guff, with a wee bit of theory, but a lot of practice. So, you know, it's, it's my gift to the world. <laughs> it certainly is, and, and it's certainly something that I could have done with eight, nine years ago when I started and not having to go through some of the scenarios <laughs> which, which you spoke about. Uh, you start the book outlining eight principles of the classroom. Can you share a little bit about what they are and, and how you came to them? Sure. It's actually ten principles. I don't know, I don't know who I'm talking to here. That's, that's okay. There's ten principles of the oh, class. There's ten. Sorry, I've got it in front of me as well. Oh dear, that's <laughs> fine. Listen, here's here's the eight plus two principles, and I can run through them super quickly if you like, because these are the kind of the axioms that I rest all my other principles on. You can challenge these if you like. You know, as I say, when it comes to behaviour management, um, nothing is incontrovertible, nothing is irrefutable. Dylan William, who was good enough to give me a, a recommendation for this book. Um, said that the field of behaviour management is one of those fields where there's so much which is contestable because the data there is, is, you know, sometimes it's thick and sometimes it's thin. And he said that this is as good as he's seen. So I was, you know, mightily proud of that. So number one, behaviour is a curriculum. The, the behaviour you see from well-behaved children has been learned somewhere, right? It's not just a gift given to them by the fairies. There's not bad kids and good kids. The, children, the child is well-behaved in your classroom has learned those habits from somewhere else. You know, good behavior isn't one thing, it's lots of little things. It's knowing how to be patient and kind and share and be tolerant and speak when you're supposed to speak and be brave, but also at the same time be helpful and blah, blah, blah. It's wee micro skills. And you know, a story I often tell is that my father taught me to drive and he was a brilliant driver, but you know, <laughs> the world's worst driving instructor. And he doesn't mind me saying that because he was, he was a taxi driver. He was a great driver. And to him, driving was easy. But to me, it was hard. So sometimes he would say things like, just drive. And I would say, because he's Billy Conley, obviously, just drive. And um, every Scots person reverts to that accent eventually. Um, and I didn't know what he meant. And we call this the curse of expertise, when you don't realise how good you are at something you know how to do. And adults are mostly super behaviours. Well, most of us are. And we often forget that behaviour needs to be taught somewhere. And the kid that comes in your classroom who's late, you know, lazy, doesn't have any homework and so on, they've probably picked up those habits at home or through their, through their peer groups or through the previous learning phase. You know, and it's not necessarily their fault that they're like that. So we've got to teach behaviour. So behaviour is a curriculum, that's number one. Number two, children must be taught how to behave. Otherwise, you end up barking behave at them, which is a bit like my dad saying, drive the car at me. You know, you'll, ne you'll never learn that way. So if behaviour is a curriculum, children have to be taught it somewhere. And if they're going to be taught it somewhere, then we have to understand that behaviour is a curriculum. So how do we communicate this? Well, I've kind of implied it already. You don't just tell someone to behave, you teach them to behave. That's number three. Teach them to behave, don't just tell them. If I tell you how to drive a car, if I sat in a car with you and you didn't know how to drive and said, you do this once, and then walked away saying, well, you know, now you know, or there's the manual, find it for yourself. That's not teaching somebody. 
You wouldn't teach anybody anything like that. You wouldn't teach them maths or English or literacy or history or, or a P or anything at all. You teach them. And we know what teaching's like. We, you know, we know quite a bit about pedagogy. Basically, I do or say something, you listen. I get you to do something with that knowledge or skill. I watch you do it. I notice what you've got wrong. I correct the common misconceptions. I reteach the bits you didn't understand in the first place. And then we go around the, then we go around the Mulberry Bush over and over again until we all die. The point is this, that's the basic model of pedagogy. And that's how you teach behavior. You don't just tell it. You don't just say that's how you behave. And a lot of teachers say, here's my rules. Good luck. Which means that the children who already can do these types of things, who are good at being patient and waiting, for example, they get better at it. And the children who don't know what you mean or don't understand or don't have the habit of it get worse and worse and worse. And you just exacerbate the disadvantage gap. That's number number three. I want a number four. I'll get faster. Number four is make it easy to behave and hard not to. Remove any obstacles to children behaving badly. You know, for instance, if you're finding that children are easily distracted because they keep looking at each other across a across a, a you know a group work table, then you know you might want to a teach them how to do group work or b set them in rows and columns. But either way, you remove the obstacle that makes them misbehave in the first place. If children are mucking about in corridors, then you stagger the corridor times or you teach them how to walk down a corridor. Um, there's so many little things you can do to make behavior as easy as possible. I mean, the best thing you can do is by making it clear what your expectations are. A lot of teachers fall into that trap of saying, behave. Again, you're relying on them knowing what you mean, knowing how to do it, and caring about what you just said. So if you want to make it easier for kids to behave, say, this is how you behave. You know? and, and teachers often feel quite, Uncertain about doing that, they often think, oh, you know, oh, they know how to, I don't need to tell them how to line up. You do. You do need to show them how to line up. They don't know a lot of them. Number five is that no one behavior strategy works with all students. And basically what that means is that some kids are more susceptible to sanctions than others. Some kids are more susceptible to rewards. Some kids are more susceptible to social pressure. Some kids are more susceptible to peer pressure. Some kids are more susceptible to uh, a kind smile from the teacher. There's loads of strategies you can use as a teacher, redirecting, nudging, reprimanding, rewarding, encouraging, and so on. And some kids are more motivated by these than others, which means that in order for us to achieve great behavior with lots of kids, you use a magazine approach. You use as many strategies as you can, which means, I mean, people are perfectly right to say you, you cannot punish kids into being good, but you can't reward them into being good either. And you can't just teach them how to do things into being good. It's a combination of all these factors. And you do them all, which is why I, I, I bitterly resist it when people say, oh, we don't use sanctions anymore. You know, we just have 45-minute restorative conversations. I assure you the kids see that as a sanction, and I know that a teacher bloody well does. <laughs> so, so don't kid yourself. If, you, you know, if you're going to use reprimands and sanctions and so on, then do so intelligently. But don't make that the, don't make that the core or the be-all and end-all of your system. Make it part of your system. I'm at number five. I'm okay for time. Really? Is it? Is it, is, it, is it tomorrow yet? Um, number six, is that good relationships matter. But the good relationships are built out of structure. People often say, um, oh, behavior management's all about good relationships. I mean, yeah, but that means everything and nothing at the same time. And a lot of people misinterpret that to mean, oh, they need to like me, or something like that. You know, here's some, here's a wee truth bomb. Relationships are built on trust. Trust is built on structure and predictability and consistency. Kids need you to behave. Kids need you to behave. Kids need you to be the grown-up. Kids need to know that they can depend on you and you'll, you'll do, do what you say you're going to do and you'll 
and you know, see what you did, and I've lost my thread there. But you get the idea, right? You know what you mean when you say it, say what you mean. That was what I meant to say, but I didn't say it. And, and kids realize that if you're that kind of person, then their behavior will start to amend itself around about you as opposed to vice versa, rather than some kind of false currying of favor by you know, endlessly feeding them fun lessons or giving them films, or worse, making the content easier because you think, oh, they don't like it. Uh, number seven is that students are social beings. And kids are like a Rubik's Cube. Impossible to solve. Aha. No, kids are like a Rubik's Cube. I know I've just lost 90% of the, the, the younger <laughs> members of the room who don't know what a Rubik's Cube is. Kids are like a Rubik's Cube, which means to say, if you, if you move one square, all the other squares move. Mm-hmm. You know, a class is a social entity. It's a community. And if you, and if you let one kid off with a sanction, because they're nice, all the other kids look at it and go, oh, you let them off with it, I can do it too. And if you then reprimand them, they'll say, oh, you just let off your favorites, you know? So, so, so teachers always have to ask themselves, how will this strategy, this intervention, this action impact everybody, not just that one kid? You're teaching 30 kids, or in some classes, 40 kids. <laughs> or if you're in Singapore, 140, right? Or if you're in private school, five kids. So moving on. Number eight, consistency is the foundation of all good habits. I've kind of drawn that out a wee bit, which is that if you want someone to depend on you and rely on you, if you want someone to get better habits, you need to be highly consistent with your expectations. You can't just change your mind one, one day to the other. Um, habits only accrue when you keep at it. You know, this is why the gym is full in January, but empty in February. A habit only lasts as long as you practice it. And that's what we're ultimately trying to do. We're not just trying to change children's behavior. We're trying to change their habits. Right? And a habit is how you habitually respond to an environment, to a, pro- to a provocation or a stimulus. Um, I mean, I can change out people's behavior really quickly by pulling out a gun you know, and saying, dance, dance, monkey. But that's not changing your habit other than to you know, stay away from me in future. And number nine is that everyone wants to matter. And I think one of the key things about understanding children's motivation, adults' motivation for that matter in, in a staff sense, we all need to matter. We all need to feel that what we do is valued, recognized, and noticed. Status matters to us. Kudos, glory, but just the attention of others matters a lot. As you get older, hopefully it matters a wee bit less. You're not totally cravenly reliant on other people for your self-esteem. But when you're young, it's incredibly important, and particularly in the adolescent, the post-adolescent phase, it really spikes. And children massively respond to what their peers are doing. So in order for, for you to understand that, sorry, in order for you to use that, you have to understand that you need to help children understand that they matter to you, that their learning matters to you, which doesn't mean being soft and fuzzy and kind, you know, overly lovely. It just means telling them that they matter, and that's valuable. And then finally, my room, my rules. And I, and I love that line. And anyone that's old enough to remember um, the King's speech, you know, the fantastic Colin Firth, uh, Lionel Jeffrey film from about 150 years ago. And basically, you know, the King, I think it's, I can't remember which King it is, King George or something. One of the Georges, who knows. And he goes to see a speech therapist. And he's the, you know, he's the King of the Commonwealth at this point. Uh, still at this point, the King of Scotland, which, you know, who knows how long that'll last. And, um, and he likes to have a cigarette. And the speech therapist, who's an Australian, which makes it worse, <laughs> he says, put that cigarette out. And the king splutters, you know, I'm the, I'm, I'm the king, I'm the king. And the, the, the and Lionel Logue says to him, my room, my rules. 
And I remember thinking, you know what, th- 13 years from now, I'm going to use this in a, in a podcast with Darren because it's such a great line. And that's something that a lot of teachers struggle to come to terms with, which, which is that it's your room. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean it's all for your benefit. You know, you're not Donald Trump. But when you lead a room, you're in charge of the room. And if you're not, the room will be in charge of you. And the kids will make up the norms and the kids will make up the culture. And, and, and that's not good enough. Because mm-hmm. if you're relying on 30 children to spontaneously decide the optimal behavior culture, then I just hope you're teaching the sons and daughters of Swiss diplomats. You know, otherwise you're going to come a cropper. You know, you need to let them know, the kids know, that you are in charge of the room for their benefit. But their benefit may not be always for their pleasure. Right? And that's the key distinction. And that is my eight plus two rules. You've basically made me whistle-stop my entire philosophy in about 10 minutes. I know, we'll get a, a, a few of them there. And I love the idea of my room, my rules. But I also love the idea of the classroom being a community and a social entity and what you said about... Sure you don't have favourites and you, you give the, you have a fair and reasonable consequences. But we're going to unpick that a little bit more. And I'm going to ask you, Tom, what are the most common mistakes that we make as teachers when trying to run our room? Oh, it's, uh, that's easy. They buy somebody else's book. <laughs> no, um, the most common mistake, <laughs> sorry, I don't know why I did that. The most common mistake, um, probably because I haven't had my lunch yet and I'm impulsive. The most common mistake teachers make is not setting out their stall. The most common mistake teachers make is that they walk into the room and they think, I'll just try and teach my stuff, you know, whether that be history or English language or, or you know, curling or whatever it is you teach. And, you know, Kaylee dancing. And, and, and if they misbehave, I'll react to it. You know, I'll, I'll wait for that to happen. And I call this the reactive model of behaviour management. I sometimes call it the firefighting model of behaviour management. You know, you wait for everything to catch fire and then you put the fire out. But the problem with that is, You've got a fire, you've got the misbehaviour, and you have to deal with the fallout of it. Whereas, I mean, maybe I'm leading into your next question here, but, but, but here I charge. The, what they should be doing is teaching the behaviour they want to see. And if I'm honest, I think this is the paradigm shift that really revolutionised everything for me. Instead of just responding to misbehaviour all the time and kind of correcting it and reprimanding it and having the big long pastel chats and so on, which you must do, I'm not saying don't do that, but as a priority, what you do is you teach the behavior you want to see. You teach good behavior mm-hmm. and you make it normal and you make it habitual and you insist upon it and you show them how to do it. And you do that right at the front of your relationship with the kids. What you don't do is you say, hello, I'm Mr. Bennett. I'm here to teach you, you know, the great schism of the church or something like that. And watch the kids all clap their hands with, with excitement. And then when they inevitably muck about, say, I'm so disappointed with you, you know, you four stay behind. I mean, you can do that, but, but you'll always be put out fast. So that's the big mistake that teachers make. Certainly, and you, and you talk about um, making it easy for students to behave through developing that classroom culture. Yeah. With that, how important is, is establishing routines in the classroom? And what should teachers do when, establish, when teaching those routines? Yes, I mean, it's probably fairly apparent from what I say that I think it's, it's, it's core. It, you know, it's not just useful, it's essential. If you don't do it, they'll develop other habits and they'll probably copy each other because humans are very social animals and they'll probably copy the habits that get them the most social status or get them the most attention or get them noticed or valued because, again, this kind of sense of being valued really, really matters to people. 
you know, anyone that's familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, although it's not the most scientific of, of models, I think it's a useful model nonetheless, in terms of understanding what motivates people. And um, so it's terribly important to set these routines. And the great thing about setting routines, and by a routine, I just mean like a simple sequence of behaviors, do this, then do this, then do this, is that you make it more automatic, you make it more habitual, you clarify what they need to do. And also you have to sell the why, you know, this is why it's important. This is why we're doing this stuff. We're doing this stuff so we don't have to keep telling you. We're doing this stuff so, you, you don't, so you're not lost when you come into the classroom as to what to do. I'm doing this to make things easier for you. I'm doing this so you'll learn. I'm doing this so that the classroom's safer. I'm doing it so the classroom's more dignified. You know, and all these big, really important whys really resonate with children. If you say to children, you matter to me, your learning matters to me, but because of that, we're all gonna have to behave like this. Kids kind of go, ah, oh, fair enough. You know, I've never heard a kid say, how dare you say I matter to you? I, I reject this. And you do get some kids who bitterly push against you. But for the most part, children really respond well to that. They love, some of them really love it. Some of them need it as well. And then you lay out your routines by, at the start of your relationship, you say, right, so that's why we're doing these routines. Here's the routines I need you to do. So be clear yourself what routines that they have to do. You know, and, and bear in mind that you can't teach them a routine for everything. But you teach them the big, you know, the important big ticket ones like entering the classroom, leaving the classroom, starting their work, finishing their work, transitioning between activities, uh, what they should do when you want attention, how to handle homework, what to do if they're stuck, what to do if they can't handle their little ones like that, how you're going to dismiss them, how they're going to ask questions, how you'll take questions. Those are the routines you need to teach. And to my mind, it doesn't matter to, in fact, it does matter. But I really don't care if it takes all day to teach these routines. I don't care if it takes a week. It's an investment in your future with these children, most of whom will be silently thinking, oh, good, I know what I need to do. Oh, good, this classroom is run on structure. Oh, good, there's boundaries in this room. Oh, good, this teacher gives a damn about me. A wise old owl once said to me at the start of my career, kids hate boundaries and they crave boundaries. You know, and I think that's profound mm -hmm. because it just indicates that we all want to do what we want to do, but we also want to know what we can't do. <laughs> and I think that's, that's not a paradox. I think it's just a tension at the heart of being human. It certainly is. Can we, go, can we unpick that a little bit? Can you give an example? <laughs> can you give an example of, of a routine you've seen work well and what the teacher did and yeah, what they sure, did? Sure. Right. Okay, here's, a, here's one I use all the time. Lining up outside a classroom. Now, can I just stress here? I don't give a damn if your kids line up outside the classroom or not. Some kids do, some classes do, some classes don't. If you do, good. If you don't, good. What matters to me is, do the kids know what they should do when they get to the classroom? You know, did, I mean, you can, you can pilot in the classroom and get started with the work. You can pilot in the classroom and self-register and, and go to the Duplo pile, or you can wait outside and get your uniform ready and all the rest of it. All that matters to me is, do your kids know what you want them to do? There's no, there's no Tom Bennett school. You know, I've seen schools do things very, very differently. Um, you know, you go to Singapore and it's, you know, classes of 150 and you go to uh, Finland and it's all cuddles and high fives and beanbags. You know, it's, 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 it's fine. If the kids are flourishing, great. If the teachers are flourishing too, great. You know, mileage varies about different styles. So let's take lining up outside a classroom. So, Inevitably what happens is the teacher will say to the students, I want you to line up outside the classroom at the start of the day and then I'll let you come in. 
And the problem is that's far too little instruction for most children. Um, and, the, you know, and the teacher ends up you know, forever correcting children, sending them back out again because somebody came in when they shouldn't come in. And then somebody's not ready to start and all the rest of it. Here's what you do. At the very start of your relationship, you say, at the beginning of my lesson, we are going to, for example, we are going to line up inside the classroom. So everyone outside, this is what a line looks like. And you then describe it. And you then tell them why you want them to line up. And you then tell them what you want them to do in the line. And then you get them to do it. And you're, be as detailed as you want. I mean, some people treat it like, I remember when I was, I remember when I was a waiter, I used to have to check all the tables were lined up with a piece of string. Now, that's TGI Fridays for you. It's a man's life. It's a man's life in the, the upper end of the casual dining sector. And you have to line up tables with a bit of string. You know, that was detailed. You had to count the sugars and all the rest of it. Now, if you're a teacher, you go into as much detail as you want and you're, as you need. So some people will say, you know, single file or double breast or planners in hand or getting a uniform ready or bags off shoulders or bags on shoulders or quiet or conversational level or six inch voices or singing the school hymn or gliding silently up the corridor like a monk. The point is you describe it clearly and then you put, put them outside and you get them to do it. And then like any lesson, you get the kids to, to maybe do a wee bit of self-assessment. What's this line like compared to what I just said? What's right about this line? What's wrong about this line? Ryan, you tell me. You know, Bill, you tell me what's wrong. What did, what did Ryan say? Was he right? Right, how can we make that better? Let's try it again. That's better. Everyone sit down. Let's go back out and do it one more time. And you get them to practice it. And they might look at you as if to say, oh, for God's sake, sir. <laughs> you know, I feel like jumping off something high. But the more investment you make in that, the, more, the less time you have to spend for the rest of your relationship with the children tell them how to line up and also they'll be more ready to start work because if you do get them lining up one of the benefits is that they they get into the the headspace the mindset of i'm just about to start a lesson this is a this is a special place we walk in holy ground as it were um i mean you can achieve that in lots of other ways but that's what you're looking for from for instance something like a line that's bright thank you oh, then, yeah, incidentally, and once in a while you go out and you correct them you know you really you really recheck them and say right is this still good mm, certainly thank you for for going into the detail there and i think that'll be really helpful for, for too much detail never um you talk about scripts and teachers using scripts to to deal mm. with instances in the classroom how useful are scripts and, and what would you suggest that, that a teacher does yes scripts are interesting right i mean a lot of people talk about these i think they're really useful basically i remember years ago i used to um I was the agony uncle for the TES, you know, you know Ted, I know there's Test Scotland as well. Um, and I used to do the online column for behaviour, I was like an agony uncle. And people would send in lots of queries, but they were all, they were all remarkably similar. You know, there was, there was always like the same 10 questions over and over again, to the point where I thought to myself, maybe I should just write a stock answer for each one and just cut and paste it, which I didn't do, I stress. Because, you know, people need a bit of reassurance, not just, not just a stock answer. But it got me in mind to thinking that the types of things that you experience in a classroom, the problems, the challenges you face, they're actually remarkably repetitive. You know, somebody's late, someone's not got a book or a pen, somebody swears, somebody's rocking on a chair, somebody's looking at a window, somebody sets the curtains on fire, whatever. You know, it's, it's the same, okay, that's a wee bit unusual, the same 10 or 20 things. So we know that when you make a decision under pressure, you, you tend to make a much worse decision. You become subject to so many more biases. Uh, when, for instance, somebody walks into the lesson late, 
And if you haven't worked out your response to that, you're working out on the spot when you're teaching and somebody's told you to get stuffed and someone's putting their makeup on as they walk into your lesson shouting and swearing and singing Dance Monkey. That's twice I've used that expression. Um, so if you make that on the spot, you can often be quite frozen and you frequently make quite a bad decision. And one of the things that's immensely useful to anybody in any career is to know what you're supposed to be doing before you need to do it. Now, this is another reason why I get really annoyed when people say that people should learn behavior management on the job. You know, what a terrible way to learn anything. So, <laughs> you know, like the bomb disposal expert, you know, that's, that's not a great time to be thinking, is it the red or is it the blue? <laughs> well, that's a good analogy. I'm going to use that again. Thank you. I'm going to take that away from this meeting. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, um, so script your responses. And there's two ways you can script your response. You can script what you'll do and you can script what you'll say. I mean, literally write it down, you know, here's what I think I'll do. And here's how I'll respond verbally to somebody who's late so that I'm not forced to thinking on the spot of some kind of cheeky, sarcastic, mega funny answer. And the number of teachers I see who get themselves tied into knots, trying to be funny with kids. I try to say something kind of, you know, caustic, which will just solve the problem. What a load of rubbish. You know, children are famously not, not very good at taking sarcasm and humor from teachers when they're feeling like misbehaving. So that approach really, really helps teachers. It helps leaders, if I'm honest. And if we did a lot more scripting in education, we'd get a lot further with behavior management. And also, can I just say, role playing really helps this as well. And I see this as somebody who'd rather saw off a finger to join the Yakuza than, 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 than do a role play, right? But it's actually really useful, I hate to say it. Role play with somebody else being the bad student and see how quickly you fall into the patterns that you would normally fall into. It's quite a useful way of practicing what you would say. Mm -hmm. No, it's brilliant, thank you. Um, teachers often use a variety of, of sanctions or punishments, but I wanna ask, do they always work and, and how do we make sure that our sanctions work? Sanctions are a funny thing. They get people's dander up. <laughs> I know I can use that phrase with you. They get people's dander right up. And I think the reason is, is because there's not a lot of behavior management taught in teacher training, which means that teachers enter the classroom with very little understanding of how to manage behavior. And certainly very little understanding of this proactive approach to behavior management, which I constantly describe. So what do they do? As I said before, they try to teach and then they end up responding to misbehavior. And how do you respond when somebody misbehaves? Well, you reach into your very empty bag of here's what I think I should do responses and you think, well, I'll get somebody in trouble for that. And it seems the perfectly normal thing to do, perfectly rational thing to do. And I don't blame somebody for doing it. And I did it for years. The problem is if you're always you know, punishing people for stuff, you'll only get so far with some kids. Mm -hmm. I stress you need reprimands or you need sanctions. You need this repertoire, this magazine approach to behavior management. Um, as I said before, you can't punish somebody into being good, but then you can't reward them into being good either. So the way we should approach sanctions is this. We acknowledge that they are part of a behavior management strategy. We acknowledge that they are an essential part and that if you don't have some kind of negative consequence for misbehavior or persistent misbehavior as an option, then some kids will just say, well, to hell with all your boundaries because they don't exist to me. To hell with all your suggestions and recommendations because they're only serving suggestions. If you want to make some, if you want to be really persuasive with some people, remember that some people are going to require sanctions to deter them. Now, there's a thing: the only effect a sanction can really have is deterrence, if it, if it has any at all. It doesn't 
cure people. It doesn't make them good. You know, nobody has a Jean Valjean moment in a detention thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? They just think, oh, I don't like this. Maybe I won't do it again. That's it. That's the best you'll get out of a sanction. We know that sanctions affect some people more than others. Sadly, the people that affect least are the kids who behave the worst, right? Because they're already the ones that don't care about your rules and regulations. And the kids who are most deterred by sanctions tend to be the best behaved children, which is very ironic and very upsetting. But hope is not lost. <coughs> Excuse me. Most children are affected a bit by sanctions. Most children are deterred a bit. And remember this kind of social aspect of behavior management. Even if one or two kids aren't deterred by sanctions, most kids are. And if they see the sanctions being administered, then the knock-on effect to the rest of the community is that they'll probably be deterred a bit. So a sanction can only ever be a short-term behavior modifier. It's a nudge. You know, it's not a solution, but it's a nudge. And you need nudges. If you take away the nudge, watch everyone jump off the table. Because some kids will think, to hell with this. And other kids will think, well, if they're doing it, well, I'll do it too. And I've seen schools that said, we are going to get rid of sanctions. And it goes down the toilet. Uh, and sadly, a lot of people are very invested in not discussing this. There's a lot of people who are very invested in pretending that you can get rid of sanctions and everything's hunky-dory. You know? And that's when they stop asking teachers what they think. Because teachers will tell you, no, this is going down the toilet. So it's a mistake to say that everything can be solved with sanctions. But if you take away sanctions, you may as well take away two wheels of a car. All right? And so we acknowledge that sanctions aren't the, the be-all and end-all, but nothing is. No approaches. And if you're going to use sanctions and you need to use sanctions, the most important thing we know is, is that their effect, their deterrence effect, is massively, enormously magnified by the consistency of the sanction. If you let kids off one day but not the other, the consistency goes off a cliff and the effect goes down the toilet. But if you're highly consistent with your sanctions, you know, if you, if you, if you administer the same rebuke to child A as you do to child B on day one as you do in day on day 365 or day 200, depending on your calendar, then you'll find that children learn to expect the sanction. And this is where we bring Bill Rogers in, who famously said that the certainty of a sanction is far more important than the severity. I couldn't agree more. I hate using sanctions, but here's the bitter irony, or here's the twist. If you want to use, if you want to dole out less sanctions, sorry, fewer sanctions, use sanctions more consistently. The deterrence effect rockets up. Kids know they're going to get it, and they're more deterred. So there's the irony of using sanctions. That you know nobody, nobody wants to use them as your, as your, as your sole resorts but pe people frequently do because they don't know what else to do right we've got time for one more question before we go into the final three and it's it's one that i see in, in school all the time and you wrote a, a, a lovely chapter about removing children because removing children <laughs> <laughs> i love how you said that a lovely chapter about removing children <laughs> but, uh, but it's poetry can we, can we discuss what should be in place if you are removing a child because because you write something that really really um, resonated with me and, and you wrote that removing a child into the corridor is a weak and vague sanction at best. Oh God, I, I hate that so much. A lot of teachers send the kids into the corridor and, and think they've been thrown into a black hole. You know, I think out of sight, out of mind, well, the child still exists. You know, it's, it's like a philosophical dilemma. Do things still exist when I don't see them? I assure you, they think so, right? And kids who are sent into corridors don't learn anything, I mean, academically, and they don't learn to amend their behaviour. They don't have any 
great, you know, Damascus epiphany, you know, outside there. They just get up to no good. And, and, and it's a weak thing to do. If you need to send a kid into, into the corridor, the only reason you should be doing that is because A, they need a private moment to calm down, or B, you need a quiet private word with them. That's it. It's not a sanction. It's not a sanction. Some kids love it. Some kids synchronize their sendings out so they can create mayhem in the math corridor. And believe me, they have told me this, and I've seen it happen. So don't just send out into the corridor. If a child needs to be removed from a lesson, that's a very serious thing. Right? And a child should only be removed from a lesson if the behavior, the behavior is threatening. The behavior threatens the safety or the dignity of others, which includes things like you know being uh, racist or sexist, or you know, or even you know telling the teacher to f off and stuff like that. You know, that's that. You don't come back from that. You don't say sorry and say, "Oh well, I'll just stay in the lesson." No, out. Because you know you need to have some boundaries. You need to create a sense of dignity about yourself as well as everyone else. And you also one of your principal expectations is to keep the room safe. You know, I've got two kids, which is why I look so haggard and tired. And I would take a very dim view of any teacher who allowed a dangerous student to remain with my children because they thought, oh, I'll give them another chance. Wallop, as the child gets clobbered again. No, no way. Or if the lesson's being persistently disrupted, that child needs to be removed. Now, a lot of people say, oh, that's terrible. That child's learning's been disrupted. Ah, you're, you're right. It has been disrupted. And there's 29 other children in the classroom who matter as well. And we have to balance the dignity and the well-being of all these children simultaneously and we cannot sacrifice the 29 for the one having said that we also don't want to just put them out into a black hole we need to take them to a safe calm space where they can be treated with dignity but where their behavior can be unpicked where learning can at least be attempted to be administered to them and they're in a space where we can try to resolve the reasons for what happened, or administer a penalty if you think it just requires a penalty. Because remember, not every misbehavior is the result of some great internal psychological dilemma or turmoil. You know, and some is. And that's what a lot of the pastoral work done at schools is about. And if you go to a really good um, alternative provision school or people referral unit or something like that, I don't know if there's any left in Scotland, but, um, but if you go to a good school for, for children with behavioral difficulties, you know, they spend most of their time trying to unpick and unpack the reasons why kids are behaving and reteaching the behavior, which is what I've already advocated. But at the same time, you know, I remember walking into the classroom once and kids said, oh no, not again, this lesson's effing boring. And they didn't say effing. You know, and I didn't go home that night thinking to myself, oh, what was he really trying to tell me? What unmet need was he communicating? He was trying to tell me he thought my lessons were boring and he's incredibly rude. <laughs> so he didn't need a lot of love and understanding, he just needed a penalty. And then at the end, we had a pastoral conversation to say, can you see how that made me feel? And you know why your learning matters to me? You still matter to me. I want you in my classroom. I can't be having with that. What can we do next to make things better? So you always have these wee threshold conversations. And crucially, if you're going to remove a child from your lesson, there should be a, a prearranged system. You know, it's not just a booting. You're not just chucking something off the edge of the ship. There should be a system for removal. There should be a system for the person that does it. There should be a place that they go to, which they know already. And crucially, the children need to know all of this in advance, all the children, so that when it happens, they're less surprised. And they don't go, oh, that's so unfair. Or, you know, you're just picking on me. No, you've just transgressed that rule that we discussed in detail back on day one, right? And now what's happening to you is also what we discussed. Thank you very much. I'll speak to you at the end of the day. So it's that predictability that creates the, 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 the easiest transition of a child out of the classroom. It needs to be done sometimes. And I think if we pretend that it's not, 
then we're doing ourselves a disservice. And to my mind, the people that tend to say the loudest, oh, we don't need to remove children from classrooms, don't teach children. And the people that tend to say that, oh, they don't teach children, or they don't teach challenging children, or they don't teach classrooms with children who've got behavioural difficulties, or they don't teach. You know? And, and I'm happy to call people out on that, because that's where I get this most frequently from. And it's normally from people who wouldn't dream of allowing their child to go into a classroom with persistent disruptive misbehaviour or persistent dangerous behaviour. And, and, and shame on these people for advocating so poorly for children, for, for teachers. Right, thank you. And I love how they, that went all the way back to teaching and not telling behaviour from, from starting off removing children and what you said there. So thanks yeah. for knitting that all together beautifully. I well, um, look forward to my next book called Removing from the Room, not just running the room. <laughs> I look forward to that. Um, we've got, got three more questions, which are coming me, Tom. And before I do that, just very quickly, can you share with listeners where they can buy your book and they can follow you on social media? Well, I imagine they can buy it in all good booksellers and also some bad ones too. Um, Amazon, uh, I, <laughs> I alert your readers to Amazon. If you haven't heard of it, it's, it's, it's the next big thing. It's brilliant. You can buy loads of things on it. Um, and, and they bring it to your door. Uh, John Cat Publishing, are, 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 they're the lovely people that publish the book. And, you know, it's really hard to get educational books in most bookshops because, quite rightly, they surmise that they're not exactly <laughs> high-profit items. But, uh, yeah, John Cat and, and, uh, and uh, Amazon are the best places for these things. But, and how can people connect with you on social media? Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Well, you know, you know me, Darren. I don't like to go on social media very often. I'm very rarely on it. Twitter, I'm, I'm Tom Bennett 71 which may or may not be my birth year. Right? So if you want to crack my bank account, that's a start. <laughs> um, and and you're more than welcome to drop me a line, Tom Bennett Behavior at gmail.com. Um, I, I do like reading people's comments and, and suggestions as long as they're polite. Of course, of course. So, final three, three, Tom, very quick questions to ask every guest. Let's have it. What book or text has had the biggest impact on your career? Um, I, I, I don't know why I'm even thinking about this one. Uh, why don't students like school by Professor Daniel Willingham? Um, is, is, is a must read. Everybody in education should read it. Teachers, leaders, everybody should read it. It's a summary of cognitive psychology about learning. And I don't know why it's not compulsory for teachers already, because you can still go through teacher training throughout the world, I might add, and you, you barely get a scrap of psychology. Mm-hmm. Group psychology, adolescent psychology, uh, you know, learning psychology and so on. And it's, and it's shameful. And this is such a user-friendly read because it was written for the, the, the layperson. And Professor Daniel Willingham is just such a clear and easy read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I, I, I'm going to sneak another one in. Sorry, but Daisy Christalulu's Seven Myths of Education, mm-hmm. which for me punctured lots of the dogma which persisted in education, the gatekeeping and the priesthood about you know students are, are just naturally they want to learn and students learn best in groups and students learn best if you give them a puzzle and stuff like that, and all this rubbish, which we just know is untrue. Uh, so those I'm going to I'm going to slightly say two books. No, you're not the only one. So thank you, Tom. I totally agree. My second question is: if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Um, <laughs> my, my one bit of advice would be to to lay out your stall as early as possible. Is to be really. So I have to develop this to be clear what you think good behaviour looks like, and to teach the behaviour to students. Right, thank you. And my final question is, what do you think most gets in the way of just great teaching in our classrooms? Um, the thing that most gets in the way of, of teaching is, is students' behaviour. And that stems from... Here's the thing, right? 
kids are kids around the world. If you go to a primary school or a secondary school or a special school or an early years environment or AP or a Scottish school or an English school, coastal rural, urban, suburban, kids are kids. You go to Eton, you go to Castle Milk, you know, kids are kids. And they, they differ in their context and their environments, but the basic gamut of human psychology is finite. And that what we know about behavior, what we know about learning, applies to just about every single child. And the kind of things I talk about works with just about any environment or situation I've come across. That's, that's why I summarized it the way I did, because I realized that whether you've got the most challenging children or the most able children, these principles still apply. Right, thank you. And that brings us to the end, Tom. I'd like to thank you very, very much for giving me your time today. And I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. It's been a hoot and it's nice to, nice to hear uh, a familiar accent. So I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.